Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. We are not medical professionals and we are not giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different. And just because we did something one way does not mean that it is necessarily the way that you should do it. If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor. Hello, family. This week on Tits Up, our uh, episode is called, But You Don't Look Sick. I think we have all probably heard something to that effect throughout our cancer experience. And we are so lucky today. Uh, We have a guest, one of our own, that we met on one of our Facebook groups, our Young Cancer Survivor Facebook groups. Her name is Blair. She is an LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor who works primarily with anxiety, trauma, and PTSD. Um, She is also a military spouse, currently living in Virginia. Before her diagnosis of breast cancer, Blair had no family history of cancer and gained membership into this unenviable club without warning at the age of 35. Blair, welcome. We are so happy to have you today. Thanks, Megan. It is, it's exciting to be here today and with you guys. I, I love this. We're, we're so excited about this. Um, what we were talking about prior to you joining was having a conversation about more or less the societable, societable, societal <laughs> perceptions and expectations of what a cancer patient looks like. Um, I think all of us have had somebody say something, whether it's rude or insensitive or just uninformed throughout all of our process, especially with us being young. Um, So why don't I, why don't you just tell us first, kind of introduce yourself by way of your diagnosis. Um, So when were you diagnosed? What was the diagnosis and what options did you choose regarding treatment and reconstruction? Uh, Yeah, I was diagnosed uh, December of 2021. It was early December, I think December 10th you know, those dates just kind of like burn in there for you. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So December 10th, which is five days after my husband's birthday. Um, and so I was diagnosed, I'm ERPR or was ERPR positive, HER2 negative. Um, so that's estrogen, progesterone positive. And I had no genetic markers when they went through and did testing. Um, so I eventually settled on, I've had a single mastectomy and the process I went through was, uh, expander to implant. Um, and I did have a revision on the non-cancer side as well. And so now I am about 18 months into my five to 10 years of hormone blocking treatment. Um, and I can't ever get a... (laughs) 
like a real answer on so is it five years is it 10 years well it's like well you're young (laughs) so it's 10 years and then one of my other oncologists well you know it's five because we only do this medication for five but then we'll have to see I'm like okay fine (laughs) well ladies remember it'll be 20 by the time we're at our 10 year mark (laughs) oh yeah yeah exactly Blair, um, can I ask, did you have a palpable lump? I guess when, before you went in for your appointment, like what was the inclination that, wow, if something might be wrong with me, I might have cancer. Yeah, I did. I actually had a lump that I felt and it was about the size of like a marble. Um, I remember Ooh. I was visiting my sister and for whatever reason, that's where and when I found it. And she and I had talked, she'd had some, some cysts before and she's like, well, you know, I've had cysts before that could be what it is, uh, but it should, if that's the case, it'll be hormonal. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll, let me, let me give it a month. Let me give it a month, see what, see what's going on, um, see if it changes any. And over the course of the month, I just had that, you know, that feeling you get that just something's not quite right. Um, Yes. And yes. (laughs) yeah it was just that like gut weird like just something's not right here and I for those of whom people who know me I don't go to the doctor I just don't I don't the last time I had gone to the doctor was in 2016 and I had to have my gallbladder out so that's when I go to the doctor um and so I I have mine out hey yes yes. We have such a similar through line here. Um, we really do. It's very strange. It is crazy. <laughs> but yeah, so no, I went to I went to the to the um, nurse practitioner at my gynecologist, and she said, "Well, you know, it's probably not, but just in case." And so then it's went probably through the a whole, fibroadenemia, <laughs> something like that, something like that. She's like, well, it doesn't really have any of the characteristics we would expect of cancer. You can move it, yada, yada, yada. And she's like, well, but just in case. And so that started the whole process. So went very okay. quickly from there. It's, um, you know, you know, the, the very quickly, the hurry up and wait. <laughs> it feels oh, like yeah. years while you're waiting for that, uh, for that result to come back but then it's okay now here's the next five things you need to do to like today what um what sort of crossroads not not necessarily crossroads like how you are a um trauma therapist Mm -hmm. does that sound correct yes yeah that's my main focus how did your career play a role in like how you handled all of this like you know you find out that you have cancer that in and of itself i mean that is burned in my mind that Mm -hmm. day that phone call um and all of the anxiety and trauma that follows um did (laughs) you know for example you know i do family law and if i ever ended up getting divorced i would know that i can't do my own divorce like i'm too attached (laughs) to it (laughs) Did you find yourself just like spiraling and like, I, you know, I, I, having the same experience that all of us I'm sure have, did your career and what you do play a role in how you dealt with that? Or did you find yourself just like, I I can't, I can't connect what I do with what I'm going through. 
I mean, does that make sense? That was yes. very long. <laughs> I, no, no, no. I, I completely understand. Um, and in a weird way, yes, on a few different levels. Like, um, we'll never know why I got cancer. I don't have the genetic marker. I don't have the family history. There's nothing we can point to and say, like, this was the environmental factor or whatever. Um, I'm not ruling out stress. I'm not ruling out, you know, years and years and years of overworking myself. Um, and that kind of comes with the territory of the way I was working. Um, I, you know, grad school is stressful. Then you continue on into residency and that's stressful. And then you continue on. And I was working at a company that pushed really hard for an overload of clients. What I now know is an overload of clients and hours. And so, um, I had actually put in my notice with that particular company in November. I had accepted a position at a different company also in November and I get this diagnosis in December and it was, it was such a strange shift. It was such a strange transitional time for me because I went from, okay, I need to figure out how to transfer all my clients. I need to figure out how to make all this seamless. I need to figure out how to make sure I'm there for my clients as I'm going through this company changeover, because it's a big deal for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Then to all of a sudden, but wait, what about me? (laughs) You know, in the middle of that, but, but wait, what about me? I'm now going through this thing. And of course, heavy denial, like absolutely, I can work. This is not a big deal. People work through chemo all the time. And this is what people are telling me too, right? Oh, well, it's really not with the technology we have and the science we have and the treatments we have. Like I have friends who've been through this and they were totally fine and they worked the whole time. So of course I have this mentality of, and exactly, right? You caught that, right? I yeah. have friends who. Oh, <laughs> yep. Um, right. from somebody who worked the whole time during chemo Blair, mm-hmm. uh, it's not worth it. <laughs> right. Um, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, you know, I've said that from one workaholic to another, you know, I think mine stems from a lot of things, you know, chasing a coin you never get, or, you know, a, mm-hmm. a praise, right. Um, whatever, you know, <laughs> but yeah. did you find yourself minimizing your trauma compared to your clients or was it hard to kind of weigh the gravity of your own, you know, emotional and physical, you know, experience going through cancer with these PTSD and trauma patients that you have that are coming to you to seek kind of console for that, right? Um, right. To me, it sounds like you're almost unable to console yourself at times. I mean, who isn't, mm-hmm. right? You're like, I have cancer. Uh, now what? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, so did you find that to be your experience while counseling kind of your, your clients and patients? Or did it go back and forth? Was it balanced? Were you able to balance that, Blair? So, I couldn't, for no. sure. <laughs> the answer is no. I was not able to balance it. Like, And I... I told myself that I could handle it and I lived in that world of denial for about a week. Um, but it hit me really hard because like as a therapist, you are trained to observe yourself and you are trained to like really evaluate and take track, like take into account who you are and how you're approaching your sessions with clients. 
And so, for, like I said, for about a week, I was like, nope, nope, I can do this. Not a problem. They have it worse. My obligations to them. And I was sitting there in back-to-back sessions, waiting for a phone call, trying to figure out what I would do and how I would tell my client that I needed to take a break so I could take the phone call because I was waiting on, I remember what I was waiting on. I just remember this moment. And I realized my client had been talking for the past five minutes and I had no clue what they had said. And so it's like that kind of moment where I'm like, I can't be a good therapist and do this like this. If I'm not good myself, right? Yeah. And that applies to everything, right? Oh, I can't be a good friend if I'm not feeling right. I can't be a good wife if I'm not feeling there. Like that's some, that's a perspective thing that's really helped me throughout cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just my experience of wanting to always do something and help somebody. Sometimes I have to be like, oh no, I, I can't do that literally because of a physical limitation, you know, or something else. And that was a really hard thing, especially because, I can't do it because of something that I didn't choose or don't want to. And in my head, I'm, I want to be far beyond. Right. But in reality, I'm, I'm right behind it, you know, battling with it. So yeah, I totally understand. So how did you, how did, (laughs) I mean, maybe we all know the answer to this question, but I don't know. Some people are just absolute champs. Like how did you deal with the, initial diagnosis like you know you had your heavy denial at first it was around the holidays you probably had family stuff coming up um how i kind of went for example i kind of went um like i compartmentalized you know like i put that to the side for a little bit to try to you know get my clients in a good place before i left for my surgery Um, that being said, I was a train wreck. Um, I tried to compartmentalize. I was not good at it. I remember I was on the phone with a client and like, I started crying and like, they're the ones that are going through like, you know, really heavy family stuff. I did not handle it. Well, I have some friends that just deal with it with such grace, (laughs) or at least they seem to when they're talking to me, but where were you at? I mean, it, it depended on the situation. So, um, I am a championship compartmentalizer. Like that is my, <laughs> that is my superpower. Um, and that's a fantastic thing. Most of the time. Um, we'll talk about when it's not great, but, uh, but I was, I was able to, once I had decided that I was going to take some time off work and it was going to be like an indeterminate time. Well, no, actually, I was telling everyone I'd be back by February because I was like, well, this is no big deal. You know, by February, all of this, like my surgery will be done. I will have started or not started chemo and I'll be able to figure it out. It's not a big deal. By February, I'm going to be back. So because I was also transitioning um, to a new practice, that actually was this weird timing thing where it made it a lot easier because I'd already started talking about my client, talking to my clients about transition. Um, I had already started like introducing them to the fact like, Hey, things are going to change. I'm going to be at this practice instead. And so it made, it actually made that a lot easier to be able to like introduce the idea of, Hey, I'm going to be on an extended leave. I've got some medical stuff going on. I'm going to be on extended leave. Um, but here's the process. And 
for the most part, like with my clients, I would like to say I handled that really well. Um, because my role as the therapist is to make sure that they're okay. So if I go into a session with that mindset that like, my goal here is to protect my client, it doesn't really matter what I'm feeling at the moment. Um, I can make that happen. And, you know, there are some clients that it was just like, hey, I've got medical stuff going on. You know, I will contact you when things are clearing up and my schedule opens up again. I had other clients that, you know, for whatever reasons, their anxiety and, and, and what we had gone through together with them. Um, there were other clients that I shared with like, Hey, yeah, I, I have cancer. It's one that we're going to treat. It's one that I have every confidence that, you know, in my doctors, I've got a great team. And because I have clients who honestly would have spent every moment so anxious about me that they just needed to have that extra information (laughs) um for their for their sake so in that I think I did really well um I also kind of just decided that cancer wasn't going to be a thing until after Christmas (laughs) you know so what what did that look like then like (laughs) like just keeping that from your family yeah is that Oh my God, was that so hard? Um, I mean, I ended up, I told my, I told my immediate family. So my husband, obviously, and he was, he was a trooper. He went with me to all of my appointments. Um, I told my parents and I told my sister and that was it. So, and I let them know that I did not want to really talk about it. And I did not want to tell anyone else until after the holiday. Um, because the way my family works, if that had been the case, if they had known before the holiday, my family gets together in huge gatherings. I mean, we're talking 20, 30 people and I didn't want to be the focus of discussion. So for me, that was what I had to do. I was like, all right, we can deal with this. This can be a thing after, after the holidays, but until then we're just not going to deal with this. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You said that, you know, you were, you were transferring, um, to a different, I, I keep wanting to say firm, a different company practice. Sure. practice. Okay. Yeah, a different practice. <laughs> okay. So you were saying that you were transferring, you were in the middle of transferring to a different practice. Mm-hmm. Um, how, at what point did you realize, like, I'm not going back for a while. I was in the same boat. I knew that my double mastectomy was scheduled for, um, it was July 27th, I believe. Um, and I had this mentality of like, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to be the one that comes through this and nothing will really affect my job. I'm going to be fantastic. And then fast forward, I took like eight or nine months off. (laughs) Um, at what point did you realize I'm not going back for a little while? Um, so it came in a couple of phases and this is part of like my diagnosis treatment planning. Uh, let's call it a shit fest. Um, can I say that? <laughs> Love that. Um, oh, Absolutely. And I could go into that, but that's, that's kind of a whole different scenario. But, um, 
it came in a few different phases. So like initially when I knew in December that I was going to be out, we had a date set um, very quickly for my surgery, which was in February, like mid, mid to early February. And so I had it in my hand, like, like you did, Megan, I had it in my head that, okay, so surgery, give myself two weeks and then I'll be back. Right. Cause it's surgery. Right. I've, right. I've had my gallbladder out. Okay. I was like, all right, this is abdominal surgery. It's kind of the same thing. Two weeks, it'll be fine. And it was as we got closer in and more of the planning was happening and more of the, more of the like treatment talk was happening. And I was really realizing how much more involved this was going to be than I had realized at the beginning was when I, it was just this, this insight, this was like dawning on me. Like I need more time. I need more time. I'm not going to be able to handle this. I'm not going to be able to do surgery and then turn around in two weeks. Um, and so I luckily, because I knew I was going to be out for more than two months, I had transferred clients that needed to be transferred to other providers. So they had care. So I wasn't worried about having my clients just waiting on ends for me to come back. Um, I knew that the ones who needed it had care in the meantime. So that gave me the freedom to push my date out, which was, which was really good. Um, but then there was talk about like, oh, by the way, we said you didn't have to have chemo, but now you do have to have chemo. Well, you might have to have chemo. Well, we're not sure about chemo. Well, what do you think? And I'm sitting here oh, as a patient God. going, I'm not the doctor. You're the doctor. You're the one who's supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do here. And right. it, like I said, it was, it, was, it was a cluster. It was just one of those. It was probably the worst two, you, two weeks of my life. Um, that whole process. But, you know, so in the middle of all of that, and that was happening like the week after my surgery, it was at that point, I was just like, this is going to be indefinite. I don't know what's going to happen. And so at that point, um, the folks that I knew was hang were kind of waiting for me, I contacted them and I was like, hey, look, so sorry, but there's been some other stuff going on. I am completely fine. Do not worry about me, but I don't know when I'm going to be back. So it was, it was then it was like after the surgery that I had hit that, like, yep, this is, this is more than I can handle. That realization is always very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I remember that exact same thing. So you said that you did not need chemo, same right. as me what were what were some of the comments or things that people would say to you um kind of tying back to this whole you don't look sick type of vibe <laughs> that we're throwing out today um because right. i know that i have had some really you know i don't think that people meant to be insensitive or rude or any of that i'm trying to give the general public the benefit of the doubt right um <laughs> But I think we've all had, even under the best of circumstances, I think we've all had people say really dumb shit <laughs> to all of us at some point. What did you run into? What were some of the most ridiculous things that people would say to you or kind of diminish what you were going through because you still had your hair and you're young 
and you probably did look fairly normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like once you get past the surgery and there's no more active treatment that you are updating people on, like, yeah, this is what's next. It's like, okay, I've had the surgery. And they're like, that's awesome. You beat it. You're done. And it's just, I think for me, that was the most grating is just that like, oh my gosh, but you got through and you must be feeling so much better. <laughs> Thank you for telling me how I must be feeling. Like, okay. Right. What are you, what are you I've never do felt worse say, in my life. Actually, I feel like crap. Um, and every day is super hard because they're messing around with my hormones and my body is all of a sudden doing these things that it is not, sp- I, okay, I think, here you go. The <laughs> most irritating thing that I can think of that someone said me said to me, I had enrolled in this like, like mentoring nursing things that someone was trying out. It was like a beta version of something. And so you met with a oncology nurse like once a week or whatever and talked through symptoms and what things were happening and all this. And, and she was obviously a little bit older and I was talking to her and just kind of complaining about the fact that like I have aged 20 years in the course of a month and I'm now in menopause. And I was just talking about how much this sucked and she was like, well, do you still have, do you still have, you know, your uterus? And I'm like that. Yeah, no, I haven't had a hysterectomy. She's like, oh, well, well, the good news is like once, once you're done with your 10 years of hormone treatment, you're going to have, you're going to have time where you're just completely back to normal. And I'm like, you do understand that they're keeping me on hormone treatment until I hit menopause naturally. So I am not going to have time back to normal. <laughs> Like, you do get that that's how that works, right? And she went, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I was just, like, dumbfounded. People are always, yeah, people are always trying to find, and I think it's human nature, and you'll probably understand this and be able to explain it to us better, but why do you think it is that people um, try to diminish or give you that at least type of comment well at least you have this or at least you have quote unquote the good type of cancer which everybody can fuck right (laughs) off with that but like i think everybody thinks breast cancer is the good type of cancer i'm just throwing that out there i'm not entirely sure why well because we have awareness i literally hear that Uh, well but you know but the nfl players wear pink shoes and there's all this research done on it and we've made so much strides in the last five to ten years and they know how to deal with it now and these are things i was telling myself too because like i just needed that reassurance but like i think that is the perception is everyone knows about this (laughs) exactly new drugs new treatment new new research studies all the time i'm like anyway i'm not going to get into like the difference between male and female medical research but it's just this perception it's a very appropriate time to do it if we want to i'm always it's down just... to bitch about that uh, but yeah there's this perception that breast cancer has been beaten like we we got this we understand this and i think until you've been through it until you've had a family member or a loved one go through it in which i hadn't like there was there when i say there is no cancer in my family i mean nothing nothing both sides of my family nothing right yes yep see i'm you too 
And yep. It, to say that we get it, you don't realize until you get into it that there's ERPR positive, there's HER2 positive, there's HER2 negative, there's triple negative, there's triple positive, there's this and that and the other, and where is it located, and how far is it spread, and do you have invasive, do you have non-invasive, is it ductal, is it this or that or the other, and so everyone lumps breast cancer under this one umbrella of these things that now we understand, because look at Susan G. Komen and all this money that's gone into it, we get it, we get this one, and the reality is they don't. They don't get it. So here, okay, nope. so here's the story, and you could edit this out if you want, but here's the story of, of the issue with my treatment planning. So I have no family history. I have, you know, they caught it early. I never got my oncologist to tell me what stage or grade it was. He was always like, well, it's 1B, 2-ish. It doesn't really matter anymore. That's not what we do. I'm like, okay, sure, fine. So I don't know what grade it was. Yep, when you're young, it doesn't matter. Right. And I think that's because there's such a high chance of recurrence. Yes. Please tell me after a chemo, double mastectomy, a year of Ketsyla, I have a 10 to 15% chance of reoccurrence for a cancer I had less than a 1% chance of getting and nobody can tell me why. Uh, right right and in the middle the of math ain't mathing <laughs> no the math doesn't math at all it doesn't math at all um <laughs> and you okay so so okay we have all this research we know what's going on my oncologist basically sat there because we were talking about chemo and he assured me before surgery and right after he assured me that i did not have to do chemo chemo was not going to be beneficial for me A couple of days after that appointment, he calls me back and says, we're going to have to look at chemo for you. I'm like, what? For God's sake. Did you do, um, sorry, I'm, I totally don't mean to mix up. No, 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 that's fine. Did you do an oncotype or did you have an oncotype score? Yes. That's what I've read that a lot of women who are not HER2 positive because just a little sidebar, sorry, but typically when you have HER2 positive, they're like chemo, 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 mm-hmm. chemo, or triple yeah. negative, right? But typically when you're estrogen and progesterone positive, if your oncotype scores three, there's no point in you doing chemo, right? right. But uh, that being said, also, if your estrogen and progesterone positive, I think it's high 20s, 30s, whatever, you know, your treatment doctors have set up for your parameters, I believe determines chemo, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So when it came to like oncotype, so my oncotype was low for, for the ERPR positive. It was, I think it was like 18, which, which, you know, that was the first meeting I had with my oncologist. Look, we did the surgery. We got everything. Your nodes were negative, clean margins, good, 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 good. Oncotype is 18 based on the benefit for you taking chemo versus not and your you know, re- uh, recurrence rate. He was like, nope, there's, I, I do not recommend chemo to you. It is not worth it for you. And so I had been building myself up going into this appointment. Like they're going to tell me I have to do chemo. They're going to tell me I have to do it. Like I built myself up to acceptance at this moment. And so the measure of relief I felt at that appointment when my oncologist said no chemo was just out of this world, that measure of relief. And I walked out of there and I was like, like, praise God. Thank you so much. Like I, this has just given me back years of my life. 
Um, and then a couple days later, he calls and he says, hey, by the way, we need to talk about chemo. And like the bottom oh. fell out of my world at that point. Right. So, so you build yourself up to this appointment where you're going to get the answers and you're going to get your treatment. And he says everything positive, like beyond what I could have imagined, you don't need to do chemo. Everything looks good for you. And then to get that phone call and just, that was such a low moment, um, such a low moment in there. And what he came back with, the issue had been was that they, the tumor board met and looked at, looked at my tumor and basically said, Hey, yeah, oncotype is good. Margins are good. However, her age, this is bad. And the aggressiveness of the cancer cells that we took out are really, really high. So she needs, she needs chemo because of those two things. And so there was this debate. Half of them said, yes, I need to do chemo. Half of them said no. And so my oncologist, bless him, he, he, he was a good one um, because I don't think he sees many young patients and I was the same age as his daughter. So he was very invested in making sure I, get, I got good help. And so he actually called several different specialists. They all said 50% yes, 50% no. He sent me up to Johns Hopkins to talk to a specialist. And so this is like a two-week process of getting in, and I finally go and see the specialist. And she says, I cannot tell you, yes or no, if chemo would benefit you or not. Oh, my God. Talk about the end of the road, right? Like when the specialist yeah. sits you down and says, here's this research paper, here's this calculation tool, here's this research number, here's this chart that we look at, here's this chart that we look at, the, the European version and this version. And she says, based on all of these, I have no conclusive data. I cannot advise you one way or the other. So I don't know how we have all this you? money. Uh, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> I mean, Susan G. Komen has a pink right. airplane now. Right. How how are we not able to figure out if I need it or not? Because right. <laughs> they're all studies on sixty plus women. Yes. When is, where yes. is a study based off of younger exactly. women and treatment benefits, right? Versus this versus exactly. that. You know, we don't need to go into statistics. But all I'm saying is these studies that they're comparing and basing our treatment off of are not off of patients who are the same age as us. Exactly. Sam, that's exactly what it came down to because that was what the specialist told me was like, the reason I can't, <laughs> she, exactly. She said, the reason I cannot tell you is because these charts, the statistics of these charts are on women 55 plus and your age range is not included in this chart enough for any of these numbers to actually apply to you. So I'm left. So shit, did they just leave that up to yes. you? It was 100% my job choosing whether or not I wanted to do chemo. Hold on, Blair, the LPC slash oncologist. When can I set up an appointment? 
I have some questions regarding my treatment plan. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's, it's, yeah, it was, it was insane. How disheartening. It, it was, like I said, probably the worst two weeks of this entire process, potentially the worst two weeks of my life being put under that kind of pressure and ultimately having every single expert, like my oncologist called folks from Duke. He called like anyone he could think of and presented my case. And seriously, it, it went down to a, we really don't know. Um, this is why we bring awareness yes. to our situation yes. in the hopes that there will be some group of doctors that bands together and says, hey, we really need this study and we really need to look at what is happening with these women under 40 yes. who are suddenly getting breast cancer. And I'm saying that in reference to you and mm -hmm. I, Blair, but also you, Megan, you have family history and you don't have the gene and you literally got it. There is something going on that is affecting us all in such a negative way. And I feel like very few healthcare providers are really pushing forward to that, but they're wanting us to come in every week and, and build their office for things that may or may not work or do or do not apply to us. Right. It's so aggravating. It's so aggravating. Uh, and so, um, sorry, Megan. <laughs> Oh, you're good. Go. No, I was just going to say that ties in perfectly with this theme of, but you don't look sick, right? Like, because this is the issue. This is the issue in the medical field. This is the issue with Susan G. Komen and pink everything that we're starting this month, like today, right? And the issue is these young women who have breast cancer, we don't have the luxury to be sick. Because we have yep. young families that we have to take care of. I've only been married for seven years. And like five years into it, I get cancer and my libido is gone. Like that's how in what world is that okay or fair or any of that, right? You know, young We're families. We're going to have a whole episode on that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that's, Good. That's Good. a whole thing. Yeah. I was just going to say that I'm very curious I come from, you know, military, my husband as well. And I think the biggest hurdle for my husband oh, and Megan, Megan's husband as well is, you know, they can't fix it. And I, yeah. you know, I'm so grateful that I had my rock solid of a husband, right? But I mean, his mind, I watch it like explode because he can't, you know, take the throw up <laughs> out of my stomach, right. you know, and do it for me and all all those types of things. So how is your experience with your husband with that, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, talk about rock solid, right? Like, and that's, that's obviously one of the concerns because like the number of people that I've seen go through similar experiences and what I read of like how cancer impacts relationships is like, I'm going to make up a number, but it's like half of them don't survive. That's not the real number. Don't quote mm -hmm. me on that. But, but it, the, the pressure a lot, a lot. And so I could not be more grateful for a husband who was just like, Nope, we're, we're getting through it. This is, this is what we're going to do. Okay. This is, this is what we're dealing with. These are the things we know. This is what we're going to do. And he was a rock, but definitely 
helped me keep track of things. I think Sam was it you talking about I don't remember it was you or Megan who was talking about like keeping track of the drains. Like he was on top of that. Megan's husband. Right. My husband did that as well though. I think both yeah. of our husbands, yeah. Like, you know, anything they could yes. do like tangibly, it would yes. seem like he was right up on it. I mean, he would hold out his hands for me to throw yeah. up in if I yeah. needed to. So yeah. I definitely hear you on the like and that's something you can't ask Mm-mm. for. Or I know we say our vows and sickness right. and health, but until you're not 60 yes. or 80 and in that position i don't i wouldn't you, blame my husband yeah. i get i get it man you you signed up for a maserati and now we're you know, i know in the toyota corolla you know? right in the minivan and we don't even have kids right yeah like oh my gosh we got a flat tire <laughs> Hang on, total engine change, right? Like the transmission fell out. I didn't change the oil. The the engine is all seized. We have to change all the inside parts. Hailstorm. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my goodness. No, he was he was an absolute rock. I remember. Yes. I remember my husband. Um, like when I ended up, I had I got a full hysterectomy. Um, because while I was, you know, you were kind of mentioning this, Blair, like you're going to be on, um, well, wait, what are you on then? Are you on tamoxifen? Is that what I you started said? on tamoxifen, but because the decision was made because I was not doing chemo and because the um, tumor was as aggressive as they said, that they wanted to switch me as soon as they could to the AI. So I'm doing okay. Zolodex and Letrozole right now. Okay. Yeah, I... Um... I, I just decided like, look, I was 35, same as you. And I was like, cool, cool. So I am on this medication then for 10 years. I will then go through. So I, I y'all want me to go through menopause twice. Mm-hmm. Like from what I've heard, it's miserable. Turns out everybody, it is actually miserable. But at the time I was like, it's, it sounds miserable. So you want me to do it like fake menopause. And by that, I just mean like your body's not making it happen, but like fake menopause for 10 years. And then I get off of that and I go through real menopause. Absolutely not. Like fuck off with that stuff. So, um, I just said, you know what, let's just do it once. I'm just going to do the, um, the hysterectomy. And I remember talking to my husband and I was having a full meltdown all all the time. Like you guys can always just assume I, I was going through a meltdown at the time. Um, and I was never dead set on having kids. In fact, when I was younger, I was convinced that I wasn't going to just because it looked miserable, you know, and it seemed so one-sided. And also I was not married when I was younger. You know, I didn't get married till I was 30, 34. Mm. I mean, we got this one year into, yeah, into us being married. We got married in January of 2020. Um, COVID. And then, yep, exactly. <laughs> right after that, right after that, Megan, we bought a did house. you have people at your wedding? <laughs> Not a single person. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I mean, my my dad flew in. It was cute, but we yeah. got married at the courthouse. But anyway, it's okay. We what... had two witnesses. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> Saves a hell of a lot of money. Um, saying. So yeah, we just we got married. We got a house. COVID hit. We were stuck together in the house for forever. And then, you know, the next year, I was diagnosed and you know, before my diagnosis, I had been going to the OBGYN and checking to make sure that I could have kids and like everything was still working the way that it should be. 
And it was definitely in the forefront of my mind. Um, and I remember when I was crying and crying and crying that like, I, I knew that for me, I had to make this decision. For me, it made the most sense for me to have the full hysterectomy, but we would never be able to have, I would never be able to carry a child. We did freeze my eggs, but mm -hmm. the, the comment that I remember from him was something along the lines of, and I won't get it exactly right, but he said something like, Meg, I married you because I want to be with you. I did not marry you for the children that you can give me. Mm. He was like, this is, this is a non-issue for me. All I want is you mm. and I need you to be healthy and for you to be happy. So let's do what makes you the most healthy and happy and what makes most sense for you. I'm not going anywhere because you can't give me kids. That's not why I married you. And that was such a relief. It doesn't fix everything. God knows I still struggle with it all the time, but to know that that wasn't going to be the end of my relationship there just took so much weight off. Yeah. Um, and I think we're, we want to do a whole episode with our husbands and then eventually bring other people on, but like have specific episodes dedicated towards caretakers and, you know, there are so many out there. I see it on like our Facebook groups all the time where husbands will just leave or they almost fight with their spouse for being sick. It's like they're mad at them for being sick. Um, where, where do you think that comes from? Oh, gosh. <laughs> like from the, like the psychological standpoint, I, cause it, it makes no sense to me because I'm so lucky to have somebody yeah. that is so good. But, and we all are, but I've, I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I remember sitting in the bathtub, just scrolling through our Facebook, uh, groups like, you know, breast cancer under 40 and all of that. And women talking about their spouses, punishing them almost for being sick or leaving or, you know, whatever. I, I can't wrap my head around that, but it happens so often. What do you, what do you think that is? Um, or what? happens in somebody's brain where it just flips from like, everything is fine. Everything's okay. Now they're sick. I got to bounce. Yeah. I can't handle this. Weenies. That's what they are. <laughs> yes. <Weenies. laughs> Selfish weenies. Lack of men. Those aren't men. Those aren't no. men, especially those women who have bared your children. Yeah. How dare you? I don't care if you don't love her anymore. You nurse her back to health for, to be the mother of your children right and then you figure out whatever relationship that is i'm sorry but you, regardless a marriage is a contract right and you <laughs> you owe that person especially the mother of your children at least to take care of them in a health matter right um I, yeah I, yeah, yeah no i just mm -mm. no excuse no excuse at all for i mean yes sam <laughs> absolutely but like Megan, to your to your question, like what do I what do I think it is? And of course, I am not an expert in this area, and what I say is my own opinion and observation. Um, I feel like there are things I have to caveat, but um, I think a huge part of it is just our society as a whole right now. Um, I think our generation, and I'm talking about like elder millennials on down. Um, we have been raised with a mindset of um, if it makes you happy, do it. And if it doesn't make you happy, 
don't do it anymore. And instead yeah. of, I mean, I was raised differently because my dad was Air Force and I grew up in a military family and, you know, five minutes early is on time. And um, so I grew up with kind of a different mindset, but I think a lot of folks our age and younger have a mindset of, you know, do whatever you want, as long as it makes you happy, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, it's okay. And um, if it's not bringing you joy anymore, you need to figure out what brings you joy and follow that. And instead of having this, this idea that when you marry someone, it is an agreement, it is like, if nothing else, a legal contract that says, look, I'm committing to a life together with you so we can create a family, whether that's with kids or not kids, like we're creating a family, we're creating a unit, and we're committed to this unit. And that's not really what people think of marriage anymore. Um, even like long term partnerships, they just don't think of it that way anymore. It's I'm in this for as long as it's good for me. And when it's not good for me anymore, I have every right to go seek happiness elsewhere. So I think that's a big part of it, honestly. Human beings are selfish. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) We are. are. Um, And if we don't have like... And I I think... Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very poignant. And I think I agree with that 100%. Um, The you know, when you're taking your vows, let, let's just say, I mean, we didn't really do our vows the way that most people do them, but like, you know, when you're, when you're making a commitment to somebody and you have that in sickness and in health type of thing going on in your head, I would always picture having to take care of somebody seventies yep. or eighties, you know, that's, that's way, way, way far away. So it's easy to commit to that because you can kind of in your mind build up to whatever taking care of somebody really looks like. Here I was still in the honeymoon phase with my little T-Rex arms after my Mm -hmm. double mastectomy and my husband's wiping my ass, you know, like, and he doesn't, he does not care one bit. I'm the one that's mortified, you know, like after all of those pain meds, oh my my gosh, finally poop. And my husband is wiping my ass. I'm like, oh my God, like, can I just hire somebody to come in? And of course he wouldn't have it any other way. You know, he's, he wants to take care of me. But it was, I remember that just being mortifying and, you know, for, for all of the feelings that the caretaker may be having, we're having them a lot more, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not, um, our, our emotions are not in a vacuum, you know, like they're, they're all over the place. What did you find? Well, let me, let me kind of back up. So you, your husband's in the military. You come from a military family. Did you move around <laughs> yes. during so, your treatment? Um, let's see. We, I was diagnosed December of 21 and we moved June of 22. Um, so, and, and we knew the move was coming up. That wasn't, that wasn't, uh, a mystery at that point. By December we had orders. We knew that was going to happen. Um, so it's one of those things, like when we talk about like self-care and what are some of the good coping choices that I made? Um, well, some of the good coping choices I made was when it came time to move, I hired cleaners. I've never hired someone to clean my place on a move out, but I was like, there was, we go. you know, I have them every two weeks. It, no shame. Yeah. And I was, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> I can take a week and deep clean my apartment and feel miserable, or I can hire cleaners and pay them and they will be in and out. 
and I don't have to worry about it. And it was one of those things where it's like, where people like the whole, you don't look sick thing ties in as well, because so it was June, I had had my surgery in February. And so for everyone else, like everyone else, like forgets about it. And it's like, Oh, but your surgery was so long ago. I'm sure you're feeling better now. What people don't understand about a mastectomy, like I, I joke with people, if people want to know or ask me questions about it, I give them the short version. Cause I'm not going to get into everything. And it's like, it's like replacing the stuffing, right? That's, that's the short version. I'll tell people it's like, all right, old stuffing out, new stuffing in. <laughs> That's what, that's what it is. But the reality of doing a mastectomy, it's not just like you open up the back of a teddy bear and you pull stuffing out. It's they go in with knives and all the other cutty bits and they're cutting like next to your muscles and they might clip a nerve. Like I've got a whole, you know, spot under my arm towards my back that still doesn't feel right. Right. Um, and and your breast tissue isn't just mm-hmm. where you see the boob. It's all under your arm. It's up towards your neck. It's towards the back. And all of that, all of that hurts. And it's muscle issue. It's nerve issue. And if you can imagine hands and knees scrubbing a bathroom floor, and I'm right-handed and it was on my right side, and my right arm is still not right. You know, I still have issues with the shoulder and, you know, people going, oh, well, I mean, are you sure you need to do that? Because like, it's been several months since your surgery and you've done PT. Like, I don't see what the problem is. Why would you spend the money? Why wouldn't you just do that and save the money? I'm like, well, because you don't understand. Like you do not get, I look completely fine. Absolutely. I can hold a broom. You're right. I can, but you don't understand the amount of stress and pain I would be putting myself through to do something as simple, heavy air quotes, simple as cleaning my apartment for a move out. And it's just not, nope, I look fine. You're right. I do look fine, but I am not fine. I have seen so many pictures and posts and stuff on Facebook, not on my own feed, but you know, in our groups that we're in sometimes of women that will like go back to working out like three weeks later. And I'm they like, were in what? much better I'm shape sorry, than I was starting out. Like my shit, <laughs> they must've been because I, my shit was busted. Like I was not okay for a very, very long time. Um, but I think that kind of goes into that's that's a perfect segue into like what are some of the after effects that have affected you the most you know i mean the most frustrating thing and we hold ourselves to the same standard you know we expect that we're going to be able to go back to work very soon same as everybody else in our lives you know they look at you and they say i you must be fine you know you're done with treatment now you had your surgery um you know i i had a lot of aftermath that blew up and i froze my eggs and all of that so it was like each month there was a new thing going on but if I didn't have those things, I, I would assume that I could go back um, to work and living a regular life. And when people look at you and they say, okay, you're done with treatment, you mm-hmm. you must be fine. Then they tend to fall off the face of the earth. You know, everybody's there for you during it. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't have everybody there for me during it, but you know, mm-hmm. we're going to have a whole thing on cancer ghosting too. Um, but, you know, the people that are around are expecting you to be okay. And even my husband who is fantastic, didn't understand 
why I was still struggling so much, you know, I mean, he thought that it was more of an emotional thing and maybe just kind of pull yourself out of it at a certain point, go to therapy, work it out. But there's so many after effects. Um, what were some of the ones that hit you the hardest? Like, you know, we mentioned sex drive or fatigue or, oh you know, gosh, the, yes. the drugs that were on, what, what were yeah. your, what are your, uh, not were, I mean, we're still literally in the shit of it. And what were the things that hit you the hardest that most gosh, people don't the, understand? The fatigue and also like the mental load of everyone looks and says, but your surgery was like a year and a half ago. Like, why are you, why is this still a thing for you? Are you, you should, you know, you must be fine. You know, oh my gosh, you look so good. You must be doing so great. You realize that, well, I have this regimen of drugs now that I have to take every day. And my, uh, ADHD mm -hmm. symptoms are through the roof because there's a whole bunch of research that connects like estrogen and women who go through menopause and ADHD <laughs> and how it impacts that shit. So yeah, like I find now, like when I go to work, like I have an office mm -hmm. all the way at the end of the hall. I always have my headphones on. I've got to be like in the zone. My entire office is set up just straight up for my ADD mm -hmm. symptoms and they have gotten so yep. much worse. It I is did connected. not know that they had um, a connection. And that's not something that your oncologist is going to know. It's just, you know, they, they don't know because that's not their field of research. Right. But I've, I've looked at studies that have gone, yeah, there's, there's a, um, oh, and the reason why I didn't want a hysterectomy was because there's been research and connection between um, early menopause and Alzheimer's. And when the female brain loses, loses right. estrogen, <laughs> the likelihood of developing dementia and going into decline in early Alzheimer's increases. Um, and I have a family history of Alzheimer's, which I'm terrified of. Same. Um, so yeah, Same. that, yep. Same. all of that, but like that mental load too, that, that is something that people, think people don't realize and the whole the living in the I have to acknowledge that this is a thing for me but I can't live like this is a thing for me that that like tension because it's real because you don't want to live every day going, I'm a cancer survivor. I have to do this and I have to do this and I can't do this and I can't do that. Like we, if we live in that mindset, it'll just kill you. It sucks the life out of you. But it's that finding that balance between I have to acknowledge these things and I want to live a life that's quality. And that includes everything on the list that includes the sex drive and the menopause and anxiety and fatigue and keeping track of your drugs and burning out and all of that. And that's all that silent stuff that no one sees and realizes that just comes with the territory of being a cancer survivor, um, which that word is weird, you know, because, you know, as soon as you get diagnosed, they call you a cancer survivor. I'm like, but am I really? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yes. And especially with us being young, it's like, okay, but I mean, yeah, survivor. Exactly. For now. Exactly. Like, that's, that's what my brain always does. Like I have survived now, but like, what is chance that this shit's going to come back yeah, and, it, and yeah. I'm going to be dead by 40, you know, like exactly. I, that is such a 
fear of mine. So is that surviving? Is that, hey, I beat it and it's done and it's never coming back? Mm -hmm. No, it's always on my mind, always. And it, I, I have found that it, yes. I burn out yes. so much quicker now. And there's, there's also something weird in my head. Like every night, my husband has to remind me to take my pills. And I'm yeah. like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum because I don't want to take them. You know, I mean, on top of my antidepressants mm -hmm. and my, now I'm on some mood stabilizers. So I don't lose my shit on people constantly, you know, um, then we have the gabapentin mm. for all what I call the shooty stabbies, um, yep. which is just your, your nerves freaking out because they all got severed, you know, like that <laughs> shout out to gabapentin, very helpful. Um, you know, I have all of my regular stuff and then I have my cancer stuff on top of that. And I think I have like 14 pills total. And every night when I stand there and I'm opening up each bottle and putting one pill from each one in my hand before I take all of them, it is just such a reminder. It's a moment where I usually like, things tend to just kind of fade away as I am taking my pills. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder that this is your life. This is what you are dealing with now. And this, these are the pills you will likely be taking for a very, 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 very long time. And every time I'm doing it, I feel like I'm somehow, yeah, I want to say poisoning myself. That's not the right word for it, but you know, why, why would I be actively taking pills to reduce all of the estrogen in my system to zero. You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense unless you really do understand like, you know, the, the science behind yeah. it. I know why yeah. I'm taking it, obviously. Cognitively, I know. Oh, gosh, but yeah. from an emotional perspective, my brain like shorts out every night when I have to take those pills. Absolutely. Like, why are we doing this to ourselves? Absolutely. So, I mean, you had the hysterectomy. I didn't. So I have to go in every month and get uh, the Zolodex injection, which shuts down my ovaries. And like, even that sometimes it's like, mm -hmm. I, like the month goes by and it's like my, my appointment is like Thursday this week. And I'm like, again, really? Um, and the pills and the supplements yeah. and I probably have been able to say I feel back to some semblance of normal, maybe in the last six months, maybe, because it took a full year of figuring out which supplements work yeah. and which ones don't. And like gabapentin, I can't take gabapentin. Gabapentin makes me feel crazy, like out of my skin, jump out of my skin, crazy. And it's, and it's like trying that and that doesn't work and trying this one and well, this one doesn't work and trying this one. Well, like this one gives me this side effect and I'm not going to do that. Right. And it's just that entire thing. Like that feels unending. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know I'm only, only, you know, a year or two into this, but at the same time you look at it and go like, I have to do this for the rest of my life, basically for like at least the next 10 years. And I think what kills me, like what, what gets me mentally, yeah. you're talking about like that mental, like just kind of breakdown, what gets me mentally is I'm taking all these pills. I'm doing all this stuff to my body on purpose in order to reduce the recurrence of the tumor that was cut out of me. That's what I'm doing. I'm not reducing my risk of developing a new cancer. And I was only 35 when my body said, hey, right. you know what would be fun? Let's try cancer. So we already know that my body is geared towards that, right? <laughs> my body already said, 
this could be a cool thing. Let's try it yeah. out. So the likelihood that my body is going to say at yep. some other point, hey, I know what's fun. Let's try this again. And all I'm doing with all that I'm putting my body and my relationship right. and my work and everything else through, all that I'm doing is reducing the risk of recurrence of the tumor that was already cut out. I'm not really reducing the risk of another cancer developing. Yep. That's not how it works. I'm just reducing the risk that that particular right. tumor won't pop up somewhere else. And I think that's something that Could people don't also, understand. also, you know, mutate yeah. into HER2 exactly. positive. And so, like, you successfully block the estrogen and progesterone, right? But now you have a right. new localized breast tumor that's HER2 exactly. positive. Just, just, just because. Just because. Why not? And, you know, you can cut you can cut all the breast tissue out of your body, but there's yeah. still plenty of other things that my young body has already Chest. said, you know, maybe we sabotage this too, right? So that I mean, even with a even with a mastectomy and them even with the mastectomy and them taking all of the breast tissue, my doctors were very clear with me. I mean, and they're they're fantastic. But they were like, look, there's no world yep. in which we get every yep. single breast tissue bit, <laughs> you know, like you're still going to have some in there. And my worst fear, I mean, I have turned into such a hypochondriac. <laughs> I want CAT scans or MRIs or something like once a week, honestly, is like where I'm at, you know, because my biggest fear is that behind my implant, if there is still some breast tissue, um, it's going to come back. I'm not going to be able to feel it because it's behind an implant, it's going to metastasize. And then I'm going to have lung mm -hmm. cancer or brain cancer, or bone cancer or something like that. And then that's like the end of me, you know, I am, I'm so gloom and doom constantly about that. Um, yeah. and it, it makes but me, you look weirdo, fine, Megan. you know, like, but you look turned fine. me into kind of a weirdo. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you so much. You look, you don't look sick. I, exactly. You don't look sick. I don't understand why you're still going on about the fact that you had cancer. Come on. That was like, a year ago, aren't you over it yet? When, when, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that and was I a think year that's, ago. That's the biggest thing. It. Like that's when you talk about what is some oh, of the stupid God. shit people have said. Like that—that's it. Like that is it. And it's not—they're not being malicious in any way. They're trying to be like, oh my gosh, like you are better. You're past no. this, and and like, oh my gosh, I think my mom was telling me that, well, you know, your grandma has had plenty of friends that have had the hormone positive breast cancer and they had the surgery and everything and they are just back to normal and they are doing totally fine. I'm like, they're 80. Okay. They're 80. They, they've yeah. got max. And of course left. they're doing fine. That's normal because yeah. they're already in the nursing home to start with. Like, and that sounds so, that sounds so mean. That's not what I mean, but it's right. totally different. And when people wonder why we get upset when someone says, oh, but you look so good. You don't look sick. And it's like, I know I don't look sick, but the mental load that is on you when you've had cancer in your mid thirties and now have to live the rest of your life knowing that this is something your body just already does. Like it's, it's huge. It's a huge deal. What have you done like with your, with your background, what have you done with like work-life balance and, um, you know, being able to get through each day? I'm sure that we all have medical trauma. Um, and I mean, for, for me, that stems from, you know, the, 
the weeks of not knowing <laughs> or going in and having something terrible happen, like during a surgery, um, the aftermath of surgeries, I mentioned in a previous um, episode that I ended up having to spend like a month in a hyperbaric yes. oxygen chamber oh, because, because there was a whole bunch of skin that like wasn't healing up right you know, not being able to have kids or having to put that off, all of these things build up, you know, it's not like you're in like an active war zone. Um, you know, I mean, my, my husband's got PTSD, but like, you know, his comes from a very different thing. And I think, you know, because we grew up in the generation where, you know, we had a 20 year long war, we, we tend to associate PTSD solely with soldiers mm -hmm. and, I, you know, with your background, I'm sure that you can speak to how PTSD and trauma develops from all of these other areas. It isn't just active. Oh my gosh. Like I want to do an entire episode with you guys on just trauma 101 <laughs> and just be able to like go uh, into, that's a great idea. Go into <laughs> trauma and what it is and what it's not and how it impacts you and how your brain changes. Um, just, I'd love to go into all of that. And so maybe you'll have me back and I can do that with you guys. But um, for, for me, what I have to do. So my, my understanding of trauma is, is much deeper than our pop psychology understanding of trauma for good reason, because I've spent many years on this. Um, but it's the, I had to realize that my expectations for myself because I'm not necessarily an A personality, but I'm a perfectionist and I'm an achiever and I'm a straight A student. And like, I've had nightmares about missing class and failing tests and I'm not even in school anymore. Right. So uh, when it mm -hmm. comes to that, I, I had to realize that just because I'm capable of something does not mean that I have to live up to that just because I'm capable of being the best therapist in the world just because I'm capable of being my own accountant just because I'm capable of writing a book doesn't mean that I have to or need to do any of those things I can be good enough yep. at plenty of things and that's totally fine and so that's a lot of like my work with my own therapist going through this whole scenario right um, you know, she really got me like, okay, so what do you mean when you say you need to be a good therapist? I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I need to write a book and I need to be a speaker and I need to like do all these things and I need to have like my own research team. And she's like, but why? But, uh, because that's what a good therapist <laughs> is. And she's like, but what if you were just good for the clients you had? What? Like mind blown. Right. Um, so for me, it's like taking a step back and realizing that, I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do with my clients and I have such a passion for them. But if I see more than about 12 clients a week, that's too much for me. So, so I work two, two and a half days a week, um, with the therapy. And then the rest of my time, I open my own Etsy business. I craft, I go on trips with my friends when I can, I take walks outside and the days that I'm not heavy air quotes, working as a therapist, I am allowed to do other things that make me happy, right? I love crafting. I opened an Etsy store so I could pay for my crafting supplies, right? Things like that, that I've shifted in my life. <laughs> I love it. 
that it gives me purpose and meaning and outlet and allows me to refill my energy, my, my mental, my physical, it allows me to refill my energy. Um, and yes, I'm sacrificing income, but I'm also not feeding the stress and the pressure that I am sure did not help when it came to my body deciding to grow cancer cells, right? Um, I can't blame that on stress, but what I can say is I definitely did not do myself any favors by living at the level of stress and anxiety that I lived at for a decade plus. Um, And so I, I can't live that way anymore. I think that's so important for so many of us to hear again, especially, especially as young women, you know, like have, you know, have a family, have a job, be a good spouse, be a good daughter. Um, all of that. My experience, um, as a therapist and the, some of the things that I had incorporated from working with my clients and, um, talking about how I've rearranged, I've rearranged my schedule. I've kind of shifted my career goals. Um, the amount of stress and pressure that I was placing on myself for, you know, at least 10 years up until this point, it just had to change. I I couldn't keep living in that level of stress. So what would you say to people that aren't really able to change? Um, you know, I mean, some people need to work and they need to work a lot. Um, maybe they're a single mom and they have kids and they need to still bring in that income. What other ideas would you have for them when it comes to, you know, self-care and trying to rearrange things or adding things into your life? What thoughts would you have? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I admit I'm very fortunate in that I've been able to do what I've done. Um, but one of the things that we get really caught up in is you hear this term self-care and a lot of people think, oh, self-care, that means I have to treat myself. I have to buy a thing or take time off or carve out time for a bubble bath or whatever that is. And this is a big thing that I actually work with my clients on frequently is that self-care is as unique as you are. And it really comes down to you being able to observe for yourself what's impactful for you. Like what actually does bring you joy? What makes you feel good and happy and refills your energy, whether it's mental or physical or whatever it is. And like for some people that is like, when's the last time you went for a run? Is that something you enjoyed before? try that. If you can't run, go for a walk, get outside. For some people it's all right. So you don't have a lot of time on your hands because you are working multiple jobs and you, you are a mother. So when you pick up a treat for your kids, why don't you pick up one for yourself too? Right. You can, you can self care. Yeah, exactly. I'm not cooking. Exactly. (laughs) And that's the thing. That's the thing. Like Uh, My husband and I do like uh, one of those meal um, services, like a meal box. I don't like cooking. I can cook. I don't like it. It's a lot of mental energy for me. So um, self-care is I pay the money. I get the meal box. 
it is right there in front of me. Step one, two, three, that is self-care. So a lot of times that is what we get caught up in is, well, I don't have time for self-care because I don't have time to take an hour long bubble bath. And it's like, would that even relax you anyway? Like what does relax you? Like does walking down, like for me, going to the craft store and walking down the yarn aisle and squishing all the yarn, like that's self-care. You know, you don't have to spend money. It doesn't have to be a long time thing. Like every once in a while, guess what? I will swing by the animal shelter and I will pet the kittens. And that is self-care for me, right? It does not have to be expensive. But like if, like I said, if your kids want a treat and you're like, yeah, I can buy them cookies, buy yourself your own cookies, right? Stuff like that. It doesn't have to be big, but figure out what means, what's meaningful for you and work that into your day. And it is 100% worth it. Yeah. I, I love those ideas. Like, yeah. I look at that as like happiness too, though, Blair, right? What makes yeah. one person happy is not going to make everybody happy, you know? So I don't, right. I don't know why we look at self-care as that very, you know, kind of, I guess, physical, you know, self-care, but it's, to me, making my mind less stress at ease, right? So that's why I said like takeout because I know, you know, every day, right? I need to come home and cook dinner or whatever. Screw that. I'm getting takeout. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sitting on the couch. That's my self-care. That's why I have the cleaners come every two weeks because it's not worth the mental stress when I physically wasn't able to do it. And now it's such a stress reliever to me that it's literally self-care. Yes. <laughs> I would classify it as that. I was just about to say, I mean, self-care for me, I've always kind of joked, but it's true that my home is a reflection of my mind. If my house mm-hmm. is messy as shit, my mind is messy, you know, and I can't keep it straight. And that's why I also started getting, you know, cleaners that come. We have them I got, I got to work my husband into getting them on a more regular basis. I didn't realize I married a very cheap individual. <laughs> um, he, he balances me. It's all a balance. I, but, um, I would love to get somebody every two weeks. Um, but later today, my plan is to clean the house and I hate cleaning the house. I hate putting away laundry. I hate all of it, but it is to me a form of self care to do that because the end result is a clean house and a clean mind. Um, So I love those ideas of like going to the craft store or going to pet the kitties, you know? I mean, that's, those are the things that really do kind of bring you joy that's outside of what we always tend to think of. You know, we think of like Parks and Rec, their whole treat yourself episode. Right. Um, Yeah, and it's, although I love it, and I think that everybody should do that sometimes if they're able to, yeah, self-care comes in a number of different forms. I love that. Um, we were kind of talking earlier about, you know, self-advocacy. And, you know, when when your doctors aren't giving you exactly what you need. But we're often in a situation that we don't know what we need either. Um, what would your two cents be on self-advocacy? What have you learned about self-advocacy? that one's near and dear to my heart because I think I don't do great at that. And so anything I say, like advice I give is also advice I'm giving to myself. Um, if, if you know anything about like personality and like, if you've heard of the Enneagram, I'm a nine, which means I'm a chameleon and I just go with what, like whatever, Oh, we're going to go here for dinner. Okay, fine. I don't care. And, and I don't care. 
most of the time. But learning to get out of that for myself when I'm talking to the doctor and talking to um, healthcare professionals has been a journey. And it's one of those things where I guess my advice is don't be afraid to piss somebody off because you need to ask the question for a sixth time. Like, yeah, if they're going to look at you and stare you down and say, well, that was a dumb question, just look them straight back in the eye and say, but can you answer it for me? Like there's, there's, you should not let anybody intimidate you into being silent. Like don't let anyone shut you up at this point. If you have a question, ask it. If your provider didn't answer it, talk to the nurse, call in, ask to talk to the PA, like whatever you need to do to get those answers, get those answers. And I think one of the, one of the, like, it's a double-edged sword, but one of the helpful things for me was some of these Facebook forums and being able to go in and I'm hearing and, and, and reading about treatments that just weren't offered to me. Like, it's like, oh, I didn't even realize that was potentially an option. And so being able to go see some of that information that I could then take back to my providers and say, hey, well, what about this as well? And that's been a huge, a huge self-advocacy piece as well is just like being informed, you know, don't, don't Google everything, please don't, but, (laughs) but at least being informed coming from like, I can read a forum of people who are going through the same thing and they talk about XYZ. I'm like, oh, what is XYZ? I haven't heard of it. So then I'll look that up and take that back to my healthcare provider. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, we kind of touched in a previous episode on sort of the same idea. And, you know, your brain is just not, it's not processing things the way that it usually would. You know, I mean, I always picture like fight, flight, or freeze. And there were a lot of times where I just froze. Um, and I didn't know what the next move was. And, you know, when you're keeping a log or a journal, which I am clearly terrible at, but if you're keeping a log or a journal and you know, you have on these days after this happened, you had these symptoms or you felt this way. Mm -hmm. There were so many times that I went in just meaning to complain more or less, not expecting an answer or a fix from my doctor, but I would just complain for a little while. And she was like, Oh, we got a thing for that. And I was like, Oh my God, so yeah, I think, you know, being very communicative with your doctors um, yeah. is is very, very necessary. Um, That's one of the things that did, Megan. I started like between my appointments with my oncologist, especially like in those early days as everything's settling out, I would just keep a sticky note with like a list of questions on it. And every time something happened, I would add it to my list. And so I went into the oncologist and I'm like, here's my questions. And... <laughs> Um, I love the, I had an oncologist who like, I just sat down and I said, these are my questions. And like every single line, she's like, yep, this is what we're going to do. Yep. This is what we're going to do. Here's the referral I'm going to give you because of that. And that is so empowering. That is, is so empowering. And I love that she used the sticky notes too. That's fellow ADD or ADHD yep. <laughs> sticky notes everywhere. Yes. Um, I love sticky notes. <laughs> it's like people would think I'm a serial killer. I have sticky notes in different colors for different topics all over my house and my yep. office. It's absurd. I have um, a notebook for my lists so I don't lose my lists. <laughs> I do too. Here's yeah. mine right here. 
Um, so what, what parting words would you have for our listeners? Um, if you could have them take anything away from this episode, what would it be? Um, you know, as you, as you sent me that question, I was thinking about it and I think for everyone, and this, this hits me hard too. I was talking about like normalization earlier, um, with you, with you, Megan separately. Um, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that as young women going into this world, we have to get over is that this experience can be so isolating and it can make us feel crazy and it make us make us feel like we're all alone because everyone my family knows who's had breast cancer is in their 80s right and you have this all of a sudden something is really really wrong and no one else understands what i'm going through and so for me it was so important and helpful to reach out to the places where i knew i could get support like the face group book group which was specifically for young adults or making sure that if i saw a poster for some sort of group or service i called the number and i said yes i'm here what can you do for me you know it, it is so isolating and so my encouragement to people involved in this world is is just to reach out to reach out if you know someone who's gone through breast cancer i, I have a mentor that I haven't been in touch with in many years. And when I got this diagnosis, I called her. I was like, Hey, I don't know what's happening with me, but I know you've been through this. What do I do? Right. Reach out, reach out. We have a tendency to, to, especially as women, we're like, well, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be a burden. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone else to have to worry. Get over it. (laughs) Get over that. Yeah. Reach out talk to people who actually have been through this. Um, You are not going through this alone. I love that. Yeah, no, me too. Always great advice. Um, (laughs) Please advocate for what you're going through and and things available to you for that. It's part of the reason why we created this Mm -hmm. podcast because, you know, we didn't have that and there are very few things, let's say that that genuinely, you know, do support us and in the journey and experience that we are forced to go through because none of us asked for this and I'm sure none of us want it. Um, So that all being said, Blair, I wanna personally thank you for sharing your story and experiences with us today. Also for your advice that I will be surely taking into the future. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I hope that you're on more many many more episodes with us um and can share more of your insight not only personal but career as well i think it's so awesome that it blends so closely with us and um i'm very glad that you've been able to use your career experience you know to help other people at least help me and even the times that we've talked so i greatly appreciate that blair um megan as always you know thank you um (laughs) To all of our listeners, we hope you keep listening. And as always, please remember, tits up, ladies. We are not medical professionals and we are not giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different. 
And just because we did something one way does not mean that it is necessarily the way that you should do it. If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor.